Well, how are you doing today? Kind of feels like New Jersey out there, right? Got a little rain going in the middle of August. Like, what's going on? Jesus must be coming back soon. It's like the world's going crazy. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, I, I don't know if I introduced myself before or not, but my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors. If you're brand new, special welcome. Uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now, and inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. You'll definitely want to take that out and help you follow along. So if you guys are all set, I'm ready to go. You guys ready? All right, let's pray. God, we're excited to be here, and as we kind of finish this final installment in the Gospel of Mark, what an amazing journey it's been. And we come today really hungry, like I said before, just to hear from you. And so we pray you'd speak and lead and guide, put a ribbon on this series that we could uh, kind of package it up, take it with us into our future, and we pray this in your name, amen. Hey, well, today we're continuing, or we're finishing our series that we've been in for our last year and a half. Uh, congratulations. Like, you made it. Uh, some of you weren't even here uh, when this started. Uh, some of you didn't know Jesus when this started. Uh, and so it, it has been amazing. We've been in the series for a year and a half. I counted it up this week. This is our 71st message uh, in this series, which is like biblical proportions, 70 plus one, like the Sanhedrin. Uh, and so... Uh, but for those of you who are brand new, uh, I, I want to welcome you and tell you that you've missed it. Uh, no, I said, uh, for those of you who are new, uh, to, just a quick intro. This is a series about the life of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of the key leaders of uh, the early movement of Jesus. His name was Mark. He was a close personal friend of the Apostle Peter. So towards the end of Peter's life, he writes an account of the life and teaching of Jesus based on Peter's firsthand experiences. We call it the Gospel of Mark. And so it's been a trilogy of series. And in this final series, we've watched as Jesus has come into Jerusalem. In the last couple of months, we've watched as he's, been, he's arrested, accused of high treason against Rome, uh, crucified as a political prisoner. Uh, and then we've watched the last few weeks as he's been buried. Uh, and then last week, uh, surprise of surprises, never, no one ever saw this coming, he comes back to life. He rises from the dead. Now, if you were here last week, you saw that this series has a really odd ending, right? Like, if you've been here the whole series, it's been epic. The kingdom of God is, is at hand. Jesus comes on the scene. Miracles, teaching, that even to predict his death. We've seen the, the, the arrest, the execution, the burial. Uh, and, and what you're expecting is when you get to chapter 16, is that there's going to be this epic account of the resurrection. Uh, it's going to tell you about that first resurrection Sunday morning, what happens. It's going to tell you about the next 40 days, several post-resurrection appearances, much like in the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. Uh, it's going to be big. It's going to end strong. But if you were here last week, we found it's exactly the opposite. That we, it, The story ended last week at Mark 16 and verse 8, where these three women who had witnessed his execution and then witnessed his burial, that they come back to the tomb. It's empty. They see an angel. It freaks them out. They run out screaming and don't tell anyone, right? The end. And you're like, what? And so we talked about this last week, that this is just kind of really an odd way to end the story. And and yet, the question is why? Why would Mark end it this way? And so, different scholars have different take on this, right? So, some scholars believe this was really intentional. But I want you to think with me. We've gone through the Gospel of Mark, right? And we've seen the disciples and the followers of Jesus throughout. 
And just in general, would you see that, that Mark has characterized them as really bright guys or like really stupid guys? It's stupid, right? They're slow to get it. They, they, they're slow to believe. I mean, how many times did Jesus say, hey, what's wrong with you, right? And so there's many scholars who believe, hey, this is an odd ending, but this is what Mark wanted. He wanted to end with the, the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection, but, but people being slow to buy in. And, it, and by doing it, it kind of forces you, because you've heard the predictions of Jesus, that he's multiple times, that he's going to be executed and rise. You've heard that, and now you see them going to the tomb and running out. They've heard what the angel said, and it kind of puts the ball in your court. What do you believe? Right? And so it's kind of a modern type ending, right? And there's others, there are other scholars that say, no, that doesn't make any sense, because this story has been epic. It's led, everything's led up to this. And then to end like that, it shouldn't end like that. We don't think that that's what Mark intended. And they believe that early on in the process, the original manuscript of Mark was damaged. And this is easy to believe because, you know, you've got the, remember, they don't have like books. They don't like the, it uh, wasn't like the original gospel of Mark wasn't in book form, it's in scroll form. And so it would be easy through use for it to be damaged and in the scroll to be cut off and just kind of cut off prematurely. And then maybe there was an ending like, like Matthew's and Luke and John, but it just got cut off. And you can, this even makes sense that, that then someone would come along and write a longer ending, right? Because uh, we forget this. In the first century, there's no printing press. Everything's copied by hand. And so let's say that you're sharing the gospel of Jesus out in a very distant land, and all you have is the gospel of Mark. And so you share the gospel, and people come to Christ, and now this is what you're going to use as your kind of catechesis to teach them about Jesus. And it ends with the women running out screaming. And you're like, hey, guys, there's more to the story. Uh, let me fill in some details from Matthew and Luke and John. And so you write an additional ending just so that kind of these new believers have the rest of the story. So it makes sense. But it, but it raises this issue of, well, then, why, why do we have this longer ending of Mark? If it ended in verse 8, why do we have the longer ending? In fact, if you open your Bibles and you go to uh, chapter 16 and verse 8, if you've got your apps, go ahead and turn those on. And in chapter 16 and verse 8, this is how, you know, the gospel ends. It says, trembling and bewildered, the woman went out. They fled from the tomb. You know, they're running for their lives. They said nothing to anyone because they're afraid. They're just scared to death. And then in my Bible, probably if you have a New International Version, it'll be the same. Notice there's a big black line underneath it. Notice that? That's the end, okay? And then if you go, if you, if you continue reading, though, there's a note from the translators. And the note goes like this. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. Well, the question is, well, if we don't have them, then why are they there? Who put them there? And so th this raises the question of what in theology or biblical studies we call textual criticism, right? And so th this is something I normally don't get into as much because, frankly, you know, not that many people care. But in a passage like today, it's really important because the whole passage, they're telling us something significant that in the earliest manuscripts, this whole ending wasn't there. So what does that mean? And how are we to understand that? And probably many of you as Christ followers have had this experience. You're reading along in your Bible, private devotions or whatever in church, and you'll see a little footnote. And you'll read the footnote down at the bottom, and it'll say something like this. Other ancient manuscripts say this. And there's an alternate reading. Have you seen that before? 
And so the question is, well, wait, what's going on here? What, what does that mean? And so normally we don't talk about this because we just don't spend so much time. But it's so important because this, this particular statement covers everything we're going to cover today. And on top of that, this is incredibly important for you to understand. Because as followers of Jesus, as you share the message of Jesus, sooner or later someone's going to say to you, well, you can't trust the Bible because it's so old, it's been copied over so many times, it's changed, and, and how do we even know that's what was originally said? Have you heard that one? And so it's important as Christ hearts that we understand how this whole thing works, and this is a great opportunity. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today, but I want to spend five or ten minutes just giving you a quick intro to the science, the discipline, we call in theology, textual criticism. Okay, so I'm going to spend a lot of time there, but it's important. So there in your note sheet, you have a section... This is called textual criticism, a quick intro, all right? And so we're just going to spend like five or ten minutes, a sidebar, and then jump into the passage. So here we go. Let's start with the basics. Let's say this afternoon you go home and you want something good to read, and so you pull out your copy of Plato, right? <laughs> you know, or maybe you're more like in the mood for Euripides or Sophocles, all right? But I know it's a very intelligent congregation, and so I know Sunday afternoon is high reading time for you. And uh, you don't, you know, you don't do NFL, you don't sports, you, you read ancient Greek literature. So you, maybe it's Roman, you want to read Cicero. All right, so you go home today, you pull it out, and you say, I want to read the Annals of Tacitus today. All right, so awesome, first century writer, history of Romans. So you pull out the Annals of Tacitus, and you begin to read about Roman history in the first century. I don't know if you realize this, but anytime you read ancient history, ancient documents, you're never reading the original. You're always reading a copy. Like, did you know that? You're always reading a copy. So, no, because ancient documents were written on parchment. It doesn't last forever. And so what happens is over time, any ancient document, doesn't matter what it is, it has to be copied over. And so when you're reading an, of any kind, you're reading a copy. And this is true of the New Testament, too. It's ancient document. So we call the original document that the author wrote, we call it the autograph. And then we call the other things the copies or the manuscripts. All right? So, so uh, here's the challenge. Let's, when you're reading ancient documents in, they often have multiple copies. And as you're reading an ancient document, there's often going to be, usually they're minor, we call them variants, between different copies. And this makes sense, right? Because when you're reading an ancient document, like they had to be hand copied. Like, like the original documents were copied by a guy named Xerxes, which is why we have Xerox machines. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, but <laughs> so you're, you're reading, okay, so let's say you're a scribe. This is your job all day long. You sit there copying one document to another. You can understand that even if you're trying to be as serious, as, as, like, as, as diligent as possible, from time to time, your eye is going to skip a line. You're going to miss a line. You're going to skip a word. You may put an and instead of a but, right? So what happens is you have all these copies. They're going to be minor variants, sometimes more different. Sometimes they're even more significant. Like let's say uh, a guy is copying a passage in Plato and he doesn't just miss like a word or two, he misses a line or two as he's copying. And he realizes, and he goes, okay, oh, you know, I need to go back and put that in the margin. You know, so that, 
Okay, so he puts it in the margin, but a couple hundred years later, another scribe comes along, sees this document, and it's like he sees this comment in the margin. He's like, was that supposed to be in the text, or was that like a comment of the scribe? Not really sure. He's got to make a decision, all right? So what happens is over time, you have documents that are basically the same, but there's going to be small variants or changes between, sometimes larger, but usually kind of small. So this is where the science or the discipline of textual criticism comes in. And what I want you to catch is this is not a biblical discipline. It's any ancient document discipline. They use this discipline with any ancient documents. And so the goal of textual criticism is to compare all the different copies you have and try to sleuth your way to figure out, looking at which was the original by comparing them, right? And so over the years, uh, the kind of scientists, the, 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 the thought leaders that do textual criticism, they've come up with like five or six major rules or guidelines that just are very commonsensical that help you, help you figure out what was the original. And if we had time today, I'd spell them out and they'd make sense and so on. We just don't have time for that. Um, so, but I want to give you one of the rules, okay? One of the most important rules in textual criticism is that all things being equal, and they're not always equal, okay? So, so the, this rule doesn't always trump the other rules. But all things being equal, older manuscripts are considered, considered to be more reliable than later manuscripts. And this makes sense because, let's say you're working with a document of, say, Aristotle, and you have one copy that's like 200 years after Aristotle, and you have another copy that's 600 years after Aristotle. Well, it's more likely the one that's closer to Aristotle is the accurate one, if they disagree, right? Because you have 400 more years for there's some kind of error to, to creep in. And so what, what's happening here, if you look at the Gospel of Mark now, you go back and you look at this note, this note will make more sense now. What they're telling you is that the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark that we have and some other ancient witnesses. What would those be? It'd be like a, a commentary by an early church father on the Gospel of Mark. He says, um, they don't have this final section, Mark 16, 9 through 20. In other words, that, that as you look at the oldest manuscripts and you look at other resources like early church father writings, when they're commenting on the Gospel of Mark, when they get to verse 8, they stop commenting. That's the end. They treat it as if it's the end. So the evidence would suggest that this wasn't the end, this is what we're about to read, and it wasn't written by Mark, that however, whether Mark wanted it to be short or whether it got torn off of the end, that some other early Christian leader came along and said, you know what, there's more to the story, and I need to kind of take from Luke and Matthew and John and kind of fill it in, because if this is the only gospel you have and you're sharing with new believers, you need them to know the rest of the story, all right? Now... One thing that you need to understand that about textual criticism, and this is really important, when people come and they say you cannot trust the Bible because it's so full of errors, it was copied over a million times and it's changed, we know for a fact that is not true. And the way we know it is through the science of textual criticism. Because let me, let me give you some context. I talked about reading the Annals of Tacitus. Well, a few years ago, I read the Annals of Tacitus. I, I love reading ancient history just to get a feel for when the Gospels was written, just to understand what life was like and to better understand the New Testament. And so the Roman historian Tacitus was writing in the first century A.D., same time the Gospels were being read, about what's going in the courts of, you know, uh, of Caesar and, and Roman history. And so uh, 
if you were to go back there and you say, well, how many copies of ancient documents do we have? Like if you're talking about certain documents of Plato or Aristotle, certain documents we might have as many as a few hundred, quite a few to compare, right? A lot of ancient works, uh, Greek playwrights, Cicero and all, you may have eight or nine. If you're reading the Annals of Tacitus, you have one single copy. Now, let's compare that with the New Testament. How many copies of the New Testament do you think we have? It's not one. It's not ten. It's not a few hundred. It is over 14,000 copies, manuscripts, of originally in Greek, and then as, the, as, as the, the language changed to Latin and other translations. So what this means is that we have a ton of manuscripts to compare, and it's very easy to say, has the message changed from the beginning? You can trace the lineage back from all these manuscripts and have great certainty that the message hasn't changed. Now, are there small differences? Yeah, there's small differences, and if they're significant, that's why they tell you in your Bible. Right, so in your Bible, as you're reading along, sometimes you'll say, other manuscripts, ancient man, will say this, and they'll be there. So typically, they're very small. They're not even worth mentioning. If it's bigger and it's, it's, it's worth something, here's what I want you to catch. Of all these differences in our New Testament, small differences, like none of them change our theology. None of them change the message of the New Testament, anything like that, nothing like that. But there, every once in a while, you'll have a couple longer ones. Most of them are very short, like a verse, right? But there's a couple times they're longer. And this one we're looking at today is the longest. That's why we're focusing on it. The whole thing, you know, it wasn't original in the, in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, the other long one, by the way, is the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. You'll see the same similar note there. And so what I want you to catch is Christ followers, we have very high confidence that what we're reading in the New Testament hasn't changed. It's accurate the way it was written through the science of textual criticism. And that's important for you to know. It's important for you to know in your own life. It's important for you to know as you're talking with people. And it's also important just to, as you see those notes, to understand what's going on. So as we go today, what we believe happened then is that early on in the, uh, the life of the church, that there was some Christian brother, a leader, who, who kind of filled in some details. I don't like the way this ends, you know, with you know, three women running out screaming, and that's our proof of the resurrection, right? We need a little bit more uh, concrete evidence, and so I'm going to take some of the evidence we have from the other Gospels to just fill it in, and so uh, what, what we're not saying is that this is, you know, it's all true stuff, it's just uh, that Mark didn't write it, okay? So that's a quick intro uh, to textual criticism. It's a great intro to the message today, and now we're going to close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so uh, there in your note sheet, we're going to jump into this, uh, this, this final uh, section then. Uh, I'm calling it the epilogue, the rest of the story. You've got some uh, notes there. So let's jump in, and we're going to open our Bibles to, uh, to chapter 16. We're going to pick it up in verse uh, 9. Now, okay, so you're the author, right? You, you don't like how it ends, and so here's what we're going to find. In this final epilogue, uh, the author is going to tell the rest of the story. And basically what he's going to give us, he's going to give us three examples of what Luke in his book of Acts calls many convincing proofs that Jesus rose from the dead. He's going to give us three, none of these are new. We, we talked about all three of them last week. They're all three in other Gospels. Then he's going to give us a shortened version 
of the Great Commission. And then he's going to tell us what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven. All right, so here we go. So uh, in chapter 16 and verse 9, so when Jesus rose uh, early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, uh, out of whom he had driven seven demons. And so we met Mary two weeks ago. She was one of the three women that witnessed Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection when she went to the tomb. And so uh, uh, what, we, what is new information here for us is that later that morning, that Sunday morning, she actually ran into Jesus and had a conversation. Uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 20 tells us the whole story. Can I have more details? All right, so nothing new. And so in verse 10, then she went and told those who had been with Jesus and who were mourning and weeping. So this is Saturday. This is Sunday morning, right? Remember I said last week, Saturday was the worst day of their lives. Everything they believed about Jesus was wrong. They had been deceived. They're hiding behind locked doors. Their, their, their world is blown apart. I told you last week, Saturday, they were weeping, crying. Where did I get that? I got that from here, okay? And so she comes on Sunday. They're still in a state of mourning, and she tells them, and they're saying, like, uh, we think you're crazy, okay? So what happens is in verse uh, uh, 11, it says, when, when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen them, they didn't believe it. And it's like, girl, we don't know what you're smoking, but this is not true. You need to go home, take two, and go to bed, right? So that's resurrection number one, resurrection appearance number one. Now, number two uh, comes from Luke 24. We talked about this last week. Remember, we talked about the two men on the road to Emmaus. And so this is a short version. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. They returned and reported it to the rest. But again, they didn't believe them either. Again, we covered that last week. Nothing new. Luke 24 gives a fuller detailed account. Okay, resurrection appearance number three, verse 14. Later, Jesus appeared to the 11. This was the first, that Sunday night. We talked about last week, Luke 24. Jesus comes into the room. It's locked doors. They're having dinner. Remember, they freak out. They think he's a ghost. They have no concept of resurrection. Uh, this is just kind of rocking their world. And so initially, they're very disbelieving. It's not until they touch his wounds and not until they, see his, his, they can see his body is real, not until they can eat some dinner with him and he sees, eats some fish, that they're convinced and their prejudices against the resurrection are overcome. And so he refers to that event. He says, later, Jesus appeared to the 11 as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he'd risen, okay? So three resurrection appearances uh, that are in the other gospel that he gives us a shortened form here just to say there's more to the story. Now we come to a shortened version of the, last sub, of, of the Great Commission. For those of you who've been longtime believers, you remember this. Matthew ends his gospel in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission. Jesus meets with his people been there for 40 days. He says, uh, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize people. Uh, when they come to faith, teach them to obey everything that I've told you. I'll be with you forever. Remember that? Okay, so he's going to give us a shortened version. And he says uh, in verse 15, go into all the world and preach the good news. Remember that means gospel to all creation. And, and then he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Okay, so how we respond to Jesus and the message of Jesus determines our eternal destiny. Okay, we're, we're, we're sons of darkness. We're sons of disobedience. We're on the dark side. Jesus comes, offers us 
forgiveness, amnesty. If we receive it, we can transfer kingdoms, be forgiven. If we don't, we're on the enemy's side still, we'll be condemned. Now, if this was the only passage of Scripture you had about baptism, it sounds like in order to be saved, you have to be baptized, doesn't it? Uh, we know from Matthew 28, the longer version, that's not the case. We know it from the New Testament. Uh, but I want to point out something that's really important. I want you to catch this. We often talk about this here at Rocky Peak. I often talk about this. That for, the early church, for Jesus and for the early church, baptism was not an option. Like baptism was part of the process of coming to Jesus. You came to Jesus, you got baptized, right? It's how you did it. Um, like, like, I like to compare it to a wedding. Like, let's say you go to a wedding ceremony. Two people are getting married. Well, part of that process is the ring exchange, right? Now, if they don't have rings, are they not married? Well, no, I guess so. They're still married. But it's kind of weird, right? Like, kind of weird if the guy says, yeah, I want to marry you. I don't want to wear a ring. I don't want anyone to know. Want to keep it on the down low. <laughs> this whole idea of being off the market is a little scary. Uh, I, so in the same way, in the, in the movement of Jesus, to be believe in Jesus means you get baptized. It's all part of the package deal. right? It helps us understand that. Okay, so then he goes on. And now he's going to tell us something that if this is a legit statement of Jesus, it's, it's a unique one. Remember I said that everything in here is just a shortened version of what's in the other Gospels? There's one exception. And it's this statement. And it goes in verse 17. It says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In other words, as, as, as the movement of Jesus goes out and people believe, he says, these signs, miraculous signs will happen. He says, In my name they'll drive out demons. Now, of course, we've already seen the apostles do that in Mark chapter 6 in their ministry. And he said they'll speak in new tongues or different languages. We see that happen in the book of Acts. And he says they'll pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. And they will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And so he says as the movement of Jesus goes out, as you carry out this assignment I'm giving you, as you share the message and people come to faith, as the gospel expands, as the movement expands, uh, that certain miraculous things are going to happen to authenticate the message. He says it's good things like this. Uh, uh, you know, demons are going to get cast out and uh, sick people are going to get healed. And so he says that's going to be. Now, if this reads like a transcript from the book of Acts, doesn't it? This is exactly what happened. Uh, the, the, in fact, every one of these examples that Jesus gives is duplicated or, or shown in the book of Acts. Uh, with the exception of one. I don't know if you can pick it out. But the one is, uh, the best of my knowledge, no one drinks poison and, and, and isn't hurt. Uh, every other one, even the one about the snake bit thing. Uh, Acts 26, uh, Paul is shipwrecked, comes up on the shore. He's building a, a, a fire there. A viper poisons, deadly viper comes out, fastens on. He shakes it off. He's fine. The islanders think he's a god because he should have been dropped dead. And so every one of these we see, other than the poison one, in the book of Acts. And so here's what Jesus is saying. As the movement of Jesus goes forth, that Jesus is going to work with us to confirm the message. Now, I want to introduce a very important concept to you off of this passage. It's extremely important. 
When Jesus says these things are going to happen, he's making a prophecy, right? He's prophesying. And I want you to catch this. It is a descriptive prophecy, not a prescriptive prophecy. And that's extremely important. And I encourage you to write that down because it's an important category. As you read the New Testament, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. What's the difference? Well, descriptive just says this is what is going to happen. Like if I tell you that uh, Elijah called down fire from heaven, you don't go, oh, well, I'm supposed to do that. Right? You, it, you realize it's descriptive, it's not prescriptive. Well, in the New Testament, as the, the movement of Jesus goes out, there's all these descriptive things that happen. Jesus said, this is the kind of thing that's going to happen. He's not saying this is the kind of thing you need to make sure happens or that you need to make happen. Prescriptive. And that is a very important distinction. If you don't get this, you get into big trouble. Because every once in a while, you'll pick up your newspaper or you'll read it on the web that there's some guy, usually in Appalachia, <laughs> that in the midst of a church service has been handling rattlesnakes and has gotten bit and he dies. And why do they do that in snake handling churches? Because of the long ending in the Gospel of Mark. It says, hey, believers will do this, and they misunderstand. They think that that means every believer should do this. Every believer will speak in different tongues. Every believer will cast out demons. Every believer will lay their hands on the sick. Every believer will drink poison, and it'll be okay. Every believer. So, so what happens, the guy says, hey, that's what Jesus said. I'm a man of faith. I'm going to handle snakes, and I'm going to be good. Yeah. Like Princess Bride. Uh, uh, it's like, oh, I guess I misinterpreted that one. Uh, so so this, this has a lot of, this has a lot of powerful implications for our life because there's going to be people that come into your life and say, hey, look at what it says in Mark 16. You need to be doing this. It's prescriptive, not descriptive. What it's saying is that wherever the gospel of Jesus goes, miracles are going to happen to confirm the message. And can I tell you something? This, is, this has gone on throughout all church history, and it's still going on today. Uh, uh, I think it especially goes on where the gospel of Jesus is breaking into new cultural territory where it's never gone before. Uh, we were talking about this in our life group uh, this year, and we have this incredible guy in our life group, tremendous guy, I love this guy, man of huge integrity, he's got a ministry in India, right? And so earlier in the year, we were talking about this, and I was just throwing out kind of my theory, that as you look at church history, you look around the world, it seems that when the gospel spreads into an area for the first time, that God often does more supernatural things to authenticate it, right? And I was saying to him, hey, do you think that's true? You spent a lot of time in India. It's one that kind of meets that criteria. Do you and he said, oh, that's totally true. And he began to share stories. And these are firsthand stories, right? These are not like website stories, right? Like he got forwarded from 800 people, you know? This is like firsthand my buddy who walks with Jesus, know him personally, tremendous integrity, and, and he was sharing, for, it was incredible, he was sharing that he was in India, and uh, he was preaching and sharing the gospel in this town, and he was supposed to have lunch afterwards with, uh, with the pastor, in, in one of the pastors in this town. And so as he's sharing the gospel, he notices at the back, there's a guy laying on a mat in the dirt who looks really sick. 
And so as he gets done preaching, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, go pray for that man that he would be raised up and healed. And he says, no, I don't want to do that. (laughs) He looks way too sick. And he said, you know, I've learned not to mess with the Holy Spirit, right? I've learned to obey. So he said, I I didn't think anything was going to happen. I was full of doubt. But I was just going to obey the Holy Spirit. So So he said, I went back there, then this meeting, and I lay hands on him, and I prayed that Jesus would heal him. And he said, my thought was, I'm going to lunch with this pastor, and then I'm leaving right after that. Even if nothing happens, I'll be good, right? And so very little faith, but he prays for the guy, uh, just out of obedience, goes and has lunch, and then he drives 30 miles away, where that night he's doing an evangelistic crusade. Well, it's about ready to start, several hundred people there, he's ready to start, and all of a sudden, all these truckloads, big truckloads of people start pulling up in these big, like, agricultural trucks. And he recognizes that one of these guys is his, uh, this pastor friend he had lunch with. And so he pulls him aside and said, why are all these people coming? What's going on? He said, you know that guy you prayed for today? He said, yeah. He says, that guy was in the last stages of, a ser- of cancer. Everyone in the village knew he was going to die any day. And he was miraculously healed after you prayed for him. And everyone in town said, we want to come meet this God that can raise people like that. And that's why they're here. Now, this is not an internet story. This is a Rocky Peak story, right? This is my buddy's story that I, I, I know and trust in huge integrity, right? And he went on in that live group and said, let me tell you another one. And let me tell you another one. And let me tell you another one. It wasn't like one story, it was story after story. But then he went on and said, you know, it's weird, when I get back here in the States, there's people very close to me, sometimes I'll pray for their healing and God doesn't heal. Right, because the gospel is breaking new ground. It's not just about his healing, it's about validating the message. Right? And so Jesus says, hey, wherever the gospel goes, this kind of thing is going to happen, and it does. All right, so then we go. Uh, In verse 19, it says, so after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, uh, now now Luke's, I mean, now this author is jumping ahead to the ascension of of Jesus, where he rises after 40 days, being with his men, he rises into heaven uh, with him watching. It's documented, of course, in in Luke's gospel and in the first chapter of the book of Acts. It says, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Okay, so he ascends, he said, now, This is important language. Sitting at the right hand of God. It's important imagery, poetic imagery. Uh, And it comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm that Jesus quoted several times in the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who've been here, you will remember this. It's, uh, David is writing this psalm, and he's recording a conversation that he saw between God, uh, or he overheard, between God, Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, and between the Messiah, uh, David's Lord. And so in this prophecy, in Psalm 110, it says, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies come and sit at your feet. In other words, it's a prophecy that the Messiah is one day going to be the king of all creation, and he's going to be there, and and that one day God the Father is going to bring all things on on the cosmos under Jesus' leadership, and he will be the ultimate king. Which, by the way, is why we've called this whole series, the trilogy, it's all about the king, 
Right? Jesus the King, this one, the, Jesus the crucified King, because that's the message of Mark's gospel, that Jesus, because based on his death and his resurrection, has ascended into heaven, he's sitting at the right hand of God, and he is currently in charge of the universe. Now catch this, this is important. You say, well, it doesn't look like he's in charge. I get that. But he is. Just like God has been ruling over creation since the beginning of time. And there is a time and a place where Jesus will stand up off that throne and begin to rule in real time. Right? And so, because catch this, you may want to write this reference down. Luke, I mean, uh, Revelation 11:15, book of Revelation, John's vision at the end times. And after the seventh trumpet blows, in the book of Revelation, John hears a voice, in, many voices in heaven, and here's what they're saying. The kingdom of this world, okay, Satan's kingdom, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Messiah. Right? So notice, there is a time in human history that is set in time. Remember Jesus said, no one knows the time or hour other than the Father. But, there is a time and there is an hour and this universe is moving on at perfect timing with this appointed end. And this is so important because in our country here, we see our country going to hell in a handbasket, do we not? We, we see, we see uh, like Isaiah says, woe to those who call what is right, wrong. And woe to those who call what is wrong, right. Woe to those who call what is darkness, light. Woe to those who call light, darkness. And we are living in a day and age where our leadership, whether it's moral leadership or political leadership or economic leadership, we are living in a day and age where increasingly we are going to the dark side as a culture. And many times as Christians, we are hanging our heads and we're acting like, what's going on? And we kind of picture Jesus up there wringing his hands and saying, Father, have you seen what's going on in the United States? What are we going to do? And what we need to remember is this planet is on a time scale. It's on a timeline that Jesus is currently king. He's king over Ubekistan. He's king over Israel. He's king over Ebola. That Jesus is king. And he is ruling. And we come to Jesus, we become a part of that kingdom. And so this author wants us to know the story didn't end with the resurrection. He is ascended. He's at the right hand. He is ruling. And then he wraps up in verse 20 where he says, and so the disciples, they went out and they preached. Jesus gave them an assignment. Go out and tell the good news of the kingdom to all creation. They did that. And it says, and they preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them. And he confirmed his word by the signs that accompany it. Jesus is alive, and he, just like he worked with them when he was here, he's now working with them globally as, as the message of the kingdom expands. So as we wrap up this passage today, this, we wrap up this study today, uh, there's a couple big picture principles that I want to highlight for you that are extremely important. As we wrap up this series, we put a bow on the top, we take it with us for our future, not only individually, but as a church. couple big picture principles that I want to highlight. So there in your note sheet, you have this section that's called the epilogue, two tankaways. 
The first one may seem a little bit obvious. Hang with me. It's important. The first one goes like this, that this author who wrote this epilogue wants us to take with us, Jesus is alive. Now, this is so important because as you read it, it seems so obvious to me that the author of this epilogue is not happy with the way Mark's gospel ends. Like, he's not happy with three women running out of a tomb screaming and telling no one. He's like, hey, there's more to the story, right? And so he says, let me, let me just kind of fill it in. He wants to give some historical evidence. And so he starts by taking three post-resurrection uh, convincing proofs from the other Gospels, he puts them down. But catch this, he not only lists the story of Mary, the story of the road to Emmaus, the story of the 11 in the upper room, but he also points out that in all three cases, they all, no one believed him. They were all incredibly skeptical. Why? Because he wants us to understand that the story of Jesus is not based on want to, hope to, uh, pie in the sky. It's based on solid historical evidence. And the only reason these first believers came to believe in the resurrection was not because they wanted to, not because they thought it was likely, not because they were predisposed. They believed because of overwhelming evidence that overcame their objections and their prejudices. So he starts with there, but he doesn't want to lead us there. He wants us to understand that what the resurrection means is that not only did Jesus come out of the grave on that early spring morning in 30 AD, but Jesus is alive. And that he rose, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he is ruling, and he's working, and he's confirming his message wherever the gospel goes. He wants us to understand this. And you say, why is this important? This is so important because sometimes as followers of Jesus, we miss the obvious. When we come to a passage on the resurrection, we so focus in on the event that happened that Easter morning, we miss the aftermath. We miss the implications. What happens, we come to a section on the resurrection, we begin to immediately focus, like we have in this series, on the historical evidence. We talk about here are alternating theories, here's why they don't work, here's why the evidence is strong, and this is exactly what we need to do, because we need to understand, as followers of Jesus, that, that faith isn't blind faith, it's not a leap in the dark, it's based on historical evidence. Right? Faith is not believing something that doesn't seem to be true, like Mark Twain said. Uh, faith is based on solid evidence. And we need to know it for our lives. We need it when we're sharing the gospel. It's very important. So it's important for us to t- talk about that. But often we get so focused on the event of the resurrection, we miss the implications of the resurrection. We miss the aftermath. And the aftermath is that Jesus not only came out of the grave, it means he's alive. And because he's alive, it means we're able to enter into relationship with Jesus here and now. And that we can, he can come in, he can change our lives, he can lead us, he can guide us, he can speak, he can change, he can heal. That Jesus is alive, he's running creation today. And this is important because often, as Christ followers, we get so focused on the resurrection, we think that what it means to be a Christian is just to believe the account To believe in the resurrection means that you have an encounter with a resurrected Jesus who's changed your life. See, I I was talking with a beautiful believer this week, loves Jesus, loves his work. 
But she has been raised to believe that the only way God speaks to us is through the Bible. That's been the theology she's been taught. Now, just to be clear, I want to be ultra clear. I do not want to be misquoted out there. No bad tweets right now. (laughs) That for us as Christ followers, the Bible is the final authority in our lives, right? It's the ultimate measure of truth. Always we... We stay between the guardrails of the Bible. So when anyone comes and says to me, hey, Mike, uh, I think that God is telling me I need to leave my wife and marry this other woman because I'm not really happy and God wouldn't want me happy. I tell them, I think someone's speaking to you, but it's not Jesus, right? Because we know that the Holy Spirit's never going to contradict God's word. And catch this, the primary way that God's going to speak to us as Christ is through his word. He's going to shape our hearts. He's going to make the word come alive. It happens all the time. How many of you come up to me over the years and you say, guys, you're teaching. It feels like you're speaking just to me. What's going on there? The Holy Spirit's taking the word of God, applying it to your life. This is the primary way God's going to speak is through the word. But it's not the only way he speaks. And when you became a Christian, you didn't just come to believe in a book. You came to believe in a person. And this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to enter into a life-changing resurrection, a life-changing experience with the resurrected Jesus in real time. It means that he is speaking, leading, guiding, directing, calling to you. That's what our calling is in our life. I love the quote there on your note sheet. It's from Brennan Manning, uh, who is a, a Christ follower, is an author. He wrote a book called Abba's Child, that we've talked about the word Abba in this series But he says, the the central miracle of the gospel is not the raising of Lazarus or multiplication of the loaves, like we talked about in Mark 6. It's not the healing stories taken together. The miracle of the gospel is Christ, Messiah, risen and glorified, new body, who this very moment catches, he tracks us, he pursues us, he abides in us. He offers himself as a companion for the journey. The resurrection needs to be experienced, not just as a historic event, but as a present risenness. If we take seriously the word of the risen Christ, remember Great Commission, know that I'm with you always, yes, to the end of time. We should expect that he will be actively present in our lives. In our faith, if our faith is alive, it's luminous, we will be alert to the moments, the events, and the occasions when the power of the resurrection is brought to bear in our lives. Hey, men, Jesus is alive, and he wants a real relationship with you, and he wants to work in you and through you. He wants to be your counselor, your teacher, and your friend, and we should be growing in a dynamic relationship with Jesus. Being a Christian is not just that we believe in certain historical events. Resurrection of Jesus means we have entered into a resurrection with a Jesus who is alive and at work in the world today. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, number two. The second thing this author wants us to understand is that the movement is launched. Not only is Jesus alive, but the movement that he started is a launch. Now, to understand this one, we need to go back in time to the very beginning of the series. And I realize many of you weren't alive then. Some of you weren't born. Uh, but... Uh, If you go back with me to the very beginning of the series, I want to remind you how this series started. Remember, Jesus comes on the scene, bursts on the scene, chapter 1, and he has a message. 
and his message is the kingdom of God. That the prophets have been prophesying will one day come for a thousand years and prophesy that one day the kingdom of God, God will come and he'll break into human history and he'll destroy all that's evil. He'll heal all that's good. He'll turn all wrongs to right. Golden age. Jesus, that time is very near. It's about to start. And he said, the good news is you can get in on this. Right? And so there in your note sheet, this is how he put it. He says, the time has come. Well, what time? The time of the kingdom that's been prophesied. He says, the time has come. He says, the kingdom of God, it's near. Right? You can be in on it. He says, so you have to do two things. What do you have to do? Repent and what? Believe. And so we talked about this, right? We talked about repent. Meta noeo. Remember that? To change the way we think. We're headed one direction in life. We're running our own life. We're acting as our own king. Our own queen. Metanoeo, repent, means to do a spiritual U-turn. Go the opposite direction. Come under the leadership of our true king. What does it mean to believe? Well, Jesus comes with incredible good news. His good news is this. God is on the move. He's breaking into human history. And catch this. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter how you've rebelled against him. It doesn't matter how you've hurt people. It doesn't matter how you've rejected his leadership, the sin you've committed, who you've screwed over in your life. It doesn't matter that there is a period of amnesty. The, 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 the king is coming and he is offering amnesty for all crimes against the kingdom. And if you'll truly lay down your arms, come under his leadership, repent and trust him that you get in on this new movement of God that's going to be amazing. What good news, right? And so this is how the story begins. That the kingdom of God's breaking into time and space. You can get in. Doesn't matter where you're coming from. You need to turn around, follow Jesus, come under his leadership, and trust him. Follow him. And so throughout this series, week by week, every week, we've learned what does it look like to repent and what does it look like to trust every week. This week it's on marriage, and next week it's on money, next week it's on service. Hey, the path of greatness leads to the door of service. We get to chapter 10, and we have the most important teaching of all. Jesus asks, what's the most important thing that God cares about? His top two priorities. He says, here's what it means to be part of the kingdom. We're going to love God with all of our hearts. We're going to love one another as he's loved us. Love your neighbors yourself. He said, everything else I've taught you, it all depends on that. It's all a footnote, just an explanation of what it looks like to love God, love people. And then Jesus went on to say, and this is the reason I've come. I've come to make the kingdom of God possible. Because you are all under the power of the enemy, and a ransom has to be paid. My life for your life. So I'm going to give my life for your life so you can go free. And you can receive this offer of amnesty and you can become part of this new kingdom that God is unleashing, and you experience life as it's meant to be lived. And then he went out and did it. And we watched as he allowed himself to be arrested. He could have avoided. 
He goes through the beatings. He goes through the flogging. He's gone through the crucifixion. He's buried, and then he rises. Why? To authenticate who he is and to authenticate that his message is true. The kingdom of God has come. It has started. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done. God loves you. He's got a plan. He can restore your life. And there's an opportunity through Jesus to start over in life. And so we get to this last chapter. And what does Jesus say to his people? He says, here is your assignment. Your assignment is to go into all creation and share the good news. That there is a God who loves you, doesn't matter where you've come from, and the kingdom has started, the kingdom is launched, and though I'm at the right hand of the Father now, and I'm going to be empowering you, I'm going to be your energy source, and as you go out and as you share this message, I will work with you, I will confirm it, and the kingdom will grow, and it will expand it, and guess what? The author of this epilogue wants us to know the kingdom is launched. The movement is launched. And he says, and you've got a part in it, so get on board. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have an assignment. Together, as followers, we have an assignment. It's to share the message, the kingdom of God has come. And when you come to Rocky Peak, you should experience the kingdom of God in action. When you walk through those doors, you should experience people loving God and loving one another. You should have a foretaste of what it will be like when Jesus reigns over all the earth. This should be holy ground. This place is holy. When you walk into a life group, it is holy ground. The kingdom of God has been unleashed, and we are part of it. And we have an assignment as a church to love people well, to tell them the good news of Jesus. This is our calling, and this is the kingdom. Amen? And men and women, we are entering into a new phase. This fall, I believe, is a historic transition of this church. Three years ago, he began to call us to join him in new and fresh ways in this assignment of going into all of creation and sharing the gospel. It's how we started this journey. Then two years ago, cast the vision. That's what this building is about. That's what the remake of our campus is about. It's not about us. It's not about our comfort. It's about the kingdom. And in two months, we're going to be moving in. And people are going to start coming because they hear through the grapevine there's something new. And people that you've been praying for for the last two years, it's been a great opportunity. Why don't you come check it out? It's just brand new. We've just done this thing. And what's going to happen is we're going to pray as a church that God begins to unleash his spirit in unprecedented ways in this church as we join him in his mission of seeking and saving the lost. Men and women, this is our calling and this is the kingdom. And this is the message of the gospel of Mark that the kingdom of God has been launched and our job is to welcome people in. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are challenged, and we are excited, and we want to come under your leadership as King Jesus, that you are coronated king on the cross, that as you were lifted up, you said, I will draw all men to myself. You are seated at the right hand of the Father, at least figuratively now. You are ruling creation. We are under you. We are under your leadership. You are king. We assert that. We affirm that. 
that historic event has happened, the Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until that day comes in Revelation 15 when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God. And we are in process. And even now, the kingdom of God is advancing around the world. And we want to be a part of that movement. And so, God, we pray that you would anoint us in a fresh way. If there's anything in our hearts or lives that we need to repent of and trust you for so we can enter deeper and experience more of the power of the kingdom, Lord, you said that if you cast out demons by the power, if you cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come. And, Lord, we want to experience a place where the kingdom comes with power. And we want to be a part of that. And so we pray, Lord, as we worship now, as we bring our offerings, use these gifts to launch your kingdom. We pray you hear our praise and answer our prayer as we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. May your kingdom come and your will be done. Lord, we long for more. Amen? And we, we have just begun to see what God's going to do here at Rocky Peak. In the last few years, he's been moving in this church. I think you've sensed it. Your life groups, your life. So many of you, there was a time and a place in your life where maybe you're in the church thing, maybe you haven't come to Christ yet, but you weren't a passionate Christ follower. In the last few years, something's stirring, something's changing. God is moving, and you are waking up. It says in Ephesians Wake up, sleeper, and rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. And as a church, I've been sensing it. The last few years, we are waking up. And we're waking up for a reason. And the reason is that we have joined Jesus in his mission to seek and save lost people. And so it's exciting, and we're on the verge of something new. And so I want to ask you this week, if you believe that Jesus is king, and if you are willing to be part of the assignment, his assignment to go into all the world, I'm going to ask you something very simple. It's not big. It's not super bold. It's not going door to door or go down and stand on the Hollywood of, you know, corner of Hollywood and Vine or something like that. Turn or burn. You know, it's not that. No, no. Here's what I'm asking. This month, we are launching two new series very intentionally. We've talked about them, right? We're giving you invite cards. And here's what I'm asking. If you believe Jesus is king... If you believe in the message of the gospel, if you want to be people come to Christ, well, simple thing, I'm going to ask you, would you pray over these cards this week? Put them on your refrigerator and pray. And here's what I ask you. Just ask God, is there anyone in my circle of influence right now that you are already working on that you want me to, to invite? You know, it's so, so simple. These are easy on-ramp messages for people that are outside coming in. And so just ask, Lord, is there anyone in my life? That's simple. We can do that, right? And if he says no, that's good. Good. We're just going to let him lead us. We're not trying to cram something down. We're just going to say, Lord, I want to be aware. We're part of a movement. We're part of your mission. We want to join you. Is there anyone in my life right now? And just ask. And then just do what he says. Amen. Can we do that? Amen. All right. So as we leave today, I want to remind you a couple things. First of all, that down to my right, we always have a prayer ministry. If you need prayer about anything, just head down here. There's some uh, by the doors over here, and some people love to pray with you. Second, may this be a week where you experience the present risenness of Jesus in your life in fresh ways. As you're reading the word, as you are praying, as you're seeking him, listening for his direction, may he speak to you. Maybe it's about being harsh with your wife. Maybe it's about needing more time with your kids. Uh, maybe it's about loving someone well at your career, in your, in your workplace. Uh, maybe it's something you're, I don't know what it is, 
But we believe Jesus is alive. Amen? And as a, as a risen Savior, He speaks. He leads, He guides. So this week, I want to challenge you. Say, Lord, is there anything in my life this week you want to speak to me about? And then be quick to listen and follow. Amen? Amen. Okay, God bless you. Have a great week. I'll see you next weekend.